Discipleship is what we're going to think about this evening. Disciples, we've come across the disciples a few times already in Mark's Gospel. If you think back to Mark chapter 1, Jesus is walking by the lake. Verse 14, no, verse 16. He's by the Sea of Galilee and he sees Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets. Fishermen, he says to them, come and follow me and I will send you out to make for you to fish for people. And after that, he meets James and John, those brothers, sons of Zebedee, and to them as well, he says, leave your nets, come follow me, and I will then send you out. And they follow him. In chapter 2, we meet Levi, who's the tax collector, and Jesus says to him as well, come follow me. And he follows Jesus. So here you have five disciples that are also named in our passage this evening. Maybe Jesus had called others specifically to come and follow him, that are not recorded here, maybe. So there are specific people that Jesus has called to follow him. But as you read today's passage, you see that there's no small crowd of people who also want to come and follow him, or at least see him and and talk to him and and watch what he does. It's a huge crowd that comes by. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen negative responses to Jesus as well, haven't we? The Pharisees in particular, calling Jesus a blasphemer and a man who breaks the law, breaks the Sabbath, who doesn't do things that he should be doing as a good religious leader. You see in the opposition to Jesus. But from tonight's passage, you can't deny that Jesus' popularity has increased. It's huge. So many people want to see him. People have travelled from all over to come and see Jesus. We've seen his power, his authority in his teaching, in his healing, in his ability to cast out demons, as we continue in Mark, we'll see more and more of the same thing. You see him raise the dead and continue to do great, powerful things. We've seen the opposition. And as we've seen a bit about who Jesus is, as Mark has revealed it to us, we're also seeing the reaction of what people think, of who people think he is. And so we're starting to ask the question ourselves, who is Jesus? And what does that mean for me? What does it mean for you? Who is Jesus? Are you like the Pharisees and you think oh, Jesus is wrong? He is an, a, a doer of evil. He's a blasphemer. He's someone who doesn't follow the law. He's a bad person. Are you an onlooker, part of the crowd that we see in verses 12, um, 7 to 12? Someone who likes the spectacle, likes to see Jesus do amazing things. You think he's a really good teacher. You want to be there and to see the next great thing that he's going to do. Or are you like the disciple? Someone who leaves their own life behind and has come to follow him a bit closer, to be a bit more committed. As we look at these two paragraphs, these two sections, verses 7 to 19, I want us to contrast the crowd, those who are, who are in the crowd, and the disciples, those that have been called by Jesus. And ask ourselves, which group are we in? Are we part of the crowd or are we part of the disciples of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Firstly, to be a disciple of Jesus means to be called by Jesus, to call to be with Jesus. Verses 7 to, to 12, in one, in one way, it's like a summary of what Jesus has done so far. 
he repeated again that his miracles and his, his healings and um, the, the demons and what they do with their response to Jesus. We've seen the reactions and so these verses are kind of also what happens after verse 6. Can you remember last week? If you weren't here, we saw the beginnings of this plot against Jesus. A plot not just to get rid of him out of town, but a plot to kill him. The Pharisees and the Herodians have got together to plot to kill Jesus. So Jesus has withdrawn from the town. He's gone back to the lake. So there are those who are really unhappy with Jesus. They want to get rid of him. But there are those who are following him. The crowds are going after Jesus towards the lake. A large crowd has come from Galilee. Then in verse 8, we see that there are many people who come from all over the place, from all over Israel, to see Jesus. They've heard about this. this his, his, Jesus' news has travelled across Israel, and people have come from those places to, to Galilee to see Jesus. And we have those places named for us. And behind us, we have a little map, just to show you exactly where these people are coming from. So, the you are here sign is there. So we are around about there, near Capernaum, on the Sea of Galilee. Okay. And people have come from down here in the south, to so Judah and Edomia, Jerusalem is there. People from this area have probably travelled 120 miles. That's a few days' journey, isn't it, to go and see Jesus. People have come from across the Jordan, so this side, this is the River Jordan here, from over here somewhere. People have come from Tyre and Sidon, up the northwest, on the coast of the Mediterranean. So people have travelled from all different directions to come and see Jesus. No one's come from Samaria. There are not many Jews in Samaria, so that's probably why. But people have, have travelled to hear and see Jesus. I remember in 2012, I'm sure you do too, the Olympics were here in Britain, in London. Alison and I went down to see some things. We had tickets for the volleyball. And I also wanted to go and see the cycling time trial. That summer, Bradley Wiggins had won the Tour de France. He was favoured to claim gold in the time trial. Very busy, as you can expect. You couldn't get very close to the, to the track in your car. So Alison dropped me about a mile away, and I had to run in flip-flops to get to the, the fence to be able to see Bradley Wiggins go past. So I went off with a radio in my hand. I headed for the sideline. Above me was the helicopter filming the race, and I could see in the distance the crowds of people all stretched along the route. I got there and I joined, my, my, joined the route. I was able to get a place where I could see. People appreciated me having a radio so they could hear commentary. And there was a buzz in the atmosphere. We knew who Bradley Wiggins was. We expected him to do great things. And as he whizzed past us, we all cheered and clapped our hands and sent him to the finish line. And moments later, we heard on the radio that he had won. He had the fastest time. He'd won gold. So there was a brief celebration. We all kind of said, yeah, 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 to strangers. But then we parted and we went our separate ways. Back to wherever we'd come from. Never to see each other again. And you can imagine that that's what these crowds are like. They've come from wherever they've come to see a spectacle, to see a marvel, to see a man who does great things. That's really good, really exciting now to just go away. But is that what Jesus calls of his disciples? Is that what he wants in people following him? Or does he want something more? At the lake, you have a huge crowd, crowd pressing upon him, 
So he has to get onto a boat. But then in verse 13, we have Jesus going somewhere else, going to the mountainside to call those he wants, to call his disciples. And so he does, and he chooses 12, verse 14. He appointed 12 that they may be with him. These 12, as we know, are the disciples who will later become the apostles. Those who started the church. The leaders of the first church. Ephesians tells us that the church is built upon prophets and the apostles. So these guys are the beginning of what we are part of today. They've been chosen, they've been called, they've been gifted and sent out by Jesus. Right now, during their calling, they're called to be with him. Because they're in a time of training, aren't they? With Jesus. Three years to serve with him, to learn about him, to live with him, to talk with him, to prepare for the ministry that God has for them when he sends them out. The best Bible college training you could get. Surely three years with Jesus. See, to be a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that you just come as part of the crowd to see what he does, to be excited by some entertainment. doesn't mean you only come to him when, when you're feeling good and when life is, is nice. doesn't mean to be a disciple you come to Jesus when you're in need and when you want something from him. doesn't mean for you just to be an onlooker, someone who just comes to church perhaps on a Sunday, but the rest of the week Jesus doesn't mean anything to you. To be a disciple of Jesus according to Jesus, is that people are called to be with him, to be in relationship with him, to be committed to him, to get to know him intimately. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Do you know him in that way? He called you to be with him, to know him in a personal relationship, day by day, as you, as you live out your life. The disciples are called to be with Jesus. Secondly, they're called to be sent out to preach Jesus. Sent out to preach Jesus. People on the beach, or they're just there to, to see what Jesus can do. They're there to gain something from themselves as well. Jesus has healed many people. He's cast out demons. Verse 10, you see, for he has healed many, so that, the, that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. People wanted to gain something. Those who were in a large crowd were pushing and shoving. You can picture the scene. Poor Jesus is by the, the Sea of Galilee. He has nowhere to go as people crowd around trying to get their, their touch to go and trying to get their healing from Jesus. He has to step back and get into a boat so he has some space to breathe. I'm sure you've seen the scenes on TV. Those adoring fans as they scream and cry at their pop idol on stage whether it's the Beatles, or Take That, or One Direction. It's crazy, isn't it? Girls fainting, and their pop idol look, looks at their face. But they're there because they want something, they want to gain something from Jesus. But for the disciple of Jesus, it's, it's different. Yes, we come to gain salvation from him, but as a response, as we live our lives, we're called to be sent out for Jesus. We're called to join him and serve him in his mission. The message of repentance is what Jesus has come to proclaim. If you click back again to chapter 1, you see the first, some of the first words of Jesus, Jesus are reported for us in verse 15. The time has come 
The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus' teaching, his message, his gospel is what he has come for. Yes, he's come to, to heal and to cast out demons and to do these great miracles. But Jesus himself says, even though there were so many people crushing around him to see him, in verse 38, not verse 38, sorry, I got the wrong verse, but somewhere in chapter 1, he says, let's go away, let's go somewhere else, because I've come to preach the gospel. There you go. It is 38. I'm looking at the wrong verse. So there you go, he says, let's go to some, somewhere else, to a nearby village, so I can preach there also, because that is why I have come, Jesus says. And he wants his disciples to become part of his team, his mission team, to go out and tell that same gospel, to declare it to all people, so that they can come to Jesus. In the mornings, in our studies in 2 Timothy, we've been thinking about what it means to guard and pass on the gospel. And we can trace that back all the way to the disciples. They pass it on to, to future people who then pass it on and pass it on and to be passed on to us and we will pass it on to other people to be a part of God's mission team to pass on the gospel. Now we are not like the disciples, we're not apostles, we're not called to that specific role to start the church, but we are called to pass on the message, to declare the message of repentance. So, are you going to be a disciple of Jesus that's called by him, but also sent out by him? Or are you going to go out to declare the message? So we're sent out, we're called, we're sent out to preach Jesus, we're also sent out in the power of Jesus. Jesus says, or he appointed the twelve, verse 14, that they may be with him, that he may send them out to preach. And verse 15, that they may have authority to drive out demons. Matthew and Luke's account of this, it adds that they were given authority to heal the sick as well. Demons. How do we apply demons? Well, we've seen demons already, haven't we, in Mark, in the first chapter. It's actually the first supernatural act that Jesus does, casting out a demon from a certain person. Here in chapter 3, you've got demons are falling down to Jesus. They're crying out to him, you are the son of God. The crowds on one hand, they're pushing forward to touch him, to be healed. But the demons, well, they're falling down to Jesus. They know who he is. They declare, you are the son of God. They believe that. But of course the demons don't follow Jesus. They're not going to obey him. They don't like him. The demons are there to, to try and stop Jesus, to hinder his mission, to oppress and to enslave people with their, their powers by possession. When they declare you are the son of God, Jesus' identity is being exposed at that point. It's not, it's not a good thing, we might, we might think. Well, he warns them and he, he shushes them and says, don't let, don't declare such things. Mark has been revealing who Jesus is bit by bit in Mark's gospel. Up front, he's told us that Jesus is the Son of God, of course. God has declared it at the baptism. The demons have declared it here. So what's the big deal about people knowing that he is the Son of God? Well, I think that Jesus knows that if they truly knew who he was, that he was the Messiah that had been promised to come, 
their idea of who the Messiah was, no matter their idea of what he should do, was wrong, was different, and it would hinder his mission. It would hinder his road toward the cross. And the job of the demons is to disrupt that mission. They don't want Jesus to be successful in what he's come to do. They enslave people and keep them trapped. They destroy lives. And so Jesus has come to set people free. We'll see a great example of that in chapter 5 in a couple of weeks. But what about demonic activity today? How do we see these things in our own culture? We may know and hear many stories of places like Africa where demon possession and demon activity seems very much more real, very evident. I heard stories from my sister when she used to live in Africa of weird and strange things that she, she saw. But does it happen in, in our own culture? Well, I think it does. Maybe to a lesser extent, but the devil is still active and still real here. I have friends who have come from difficult backgrounds who have experienced strange and weird things from their family. Demonic influences. You've just, well, not us, but people have been celebrating Halloween just a couple of days ago. Maybe it's a bit of fun for them, but for some people it's real. There's a bookshop just up the road. It's closed now, but if you've been in there, you will see big interest in the occult and in witchcraft, things of the devil. So on one hand, yes, the devil is at work in these ways in this country. But I guess we don't see much of that, do we? Maybe we see the devil at work and active in a different way. I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, but in the preface, Lewis writes these words. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both error, errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The devil is at work. Maybe at work in a very obvious way that people can see in terms of spiritual things and people can become obsessed with that and focus on it too much. But maybe in, in our culture, it's the other way. The devil tries to get us to think that he doesn't exist, but yet he's still at work in people's lives. People may not be enslaved by demon possession, but they're enslaved through other vices. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex. Whatever it may be, enslaving people, keeping them trapped. Any kind of opposition towards the gospel is the devil's work. He's using people to try and stop the gospel, stop the mission that we're involved in. Whatever that may be. So how are we called out to be sent, how are we called to be sent out to in the authority and the power of Jesus? And we know that when we go and preach the gospel, we preach a gospel of hope. A hope of deliverance from these things. We know that Jesus can free people from their oppression, from their, their distress and their slavery. We can meet with people and we can pray with them. And prayer is a powerful thing. The devil can't stop our prayers. There's nothing you can do when we come and pray in the name of Jesus. Because there is power in that. As we offer the word of God, as we offer the gospel, the hope, it can, it can bring deliverance and it can bring salvation. 
So to be a disciple of Jesus, we're called to be with him. We're sent out to preach Jesus. We're sent out in the power of Jesus. So will you be a disciple of Jesus? Will you be a disciple or will you just be part of the crowd? Why did Jesus choose these twelve men? Does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus we have to have a certain qualification? We need certain gifts? We need to be of a certain character? Were these men, great men, that that's and that's why Jesus called them? Let's have a look at them a little bit closer and see exactly who these guys are. There are men in this list that we would never have heard of unless they were written down here. People like Bartholomew, Thaddeus. Do you know anyone who's called their child Thaddeus? People who we never really hear about apart from this passage. But then there are those who are obvious, people like Simon, who was called Peter. Peter means rock. Was that his character? Oh no. You know, he was very dodgy, wasn't he? A man who, who denied Jesus at his trial. Then you have James and John, who were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Men who had a bit of a temper. We'll see that temper in chapter 9. Matthew, well, he's a tax collector. We heard about him the other week. What about Simon the Zealot? He was a, a nationalist, a freedom fighter. So when he wanted to fight against the Romans. You can imagine Matthew and Simon being together. One who has betrayed Israel and one who is fighting for Israel. I'm sure there would have been a lot of tension in the room between those two. And then you have Judas Iscariot. The one who betrayed him. There's nothing really special about this bunch of twelve disciples, really. Maybe except Andrew. I think he was a, he was a good guy. <laughs> Mark's point here is that the, the church, the, those that God has called to lead the church, they're just normal people. There's nothing special about them. They've been called to be with Jesus so they can be empowered and equipped to be sent out by Jesus in his name, with his power, to go and be a part of his mission team to preach the gospel. So to be a disciple means that we're called to be with him. To lay down our lives for him. To be committed wholeheartedly not to be with Jesus for our own glory when things are good but to be with him in the, 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 the hard times. As Jesus' identity becomes clearer to us as we study Mark so too is the question who is he and, and will you follow him? What does it mean to follow him? And as we go on, we'll continue asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? To be someone who follows with and walks with Jesus. Why don't we take a moment just quietly to think about where our discipleship is at the moment with the Lord Jesus.